You're listening to 50 Plus a Tip, the show for strippers, ethical sluts, and other open-minded hoes. Hey guys, welcome back. It's your host, Danica, and Riley joined me today to do an interview with Nicole Hodges, and we had an absolutely wonderful time talking with her, and we know you guys will enjoy it. Today we are joined by the amazing Nicole Hodges. She's a sexual freedom philosopher, author, journalist, and just to name a few titles. Pretty much Nicole is the Dr. Seuss of sex. She's the founder of Girls Who Say Fuck, the creator of Men Who Take Baths, and the force behind the t-shirt campaign to rebrand virginity to sexual debut. Nicole is a former television personality from CTV Vancouver, which included reporting from Lesbos, <laughs> which I probably butchered, uh, Greece, where she started art camp for kids at the peak of the refugee crisis. She's also the former media consultant for the United Nations Women Advisory Committee in Vancouver. So that's just like a brief overview <laughs> of everything this woman has accomplished. And we're so excited to sit down with you today and dive into maybe even just brushing the surface of some of that. Thank you so much for joining us, Dave Nicole. Thank you so much. I love I love getting a chance to talk to you. Yes, I know we've been trying to uh, get that going uh, several times. We've, we've we've touched base here, and then we get some chances to chit chat here and there. Yeah. So, okay, obviously, first off, let's touch on Christmas since tis the season. How are your holidays? Uh, really good. Um, spent them at my uh, partner's mom's house, and so that was really nice. Obviously, not being able to go back, back and visit family in BC was kind of heartbreaking but I think most of us are in the same boat right now where there's just a lot of people that we want to see and we can't and so I kind of just accepted <laughs> where we're at and found a lot more pleasure in in releasing to this thing being out of my control so yeah overall I'd say it's really nice and, and like I just told you um I'm moving into a brand new apartment and it's my favorite place that I've ever lived so I just feel really good like I'm just really excited about the way that this year is ending yeah, that's great. Um, and those, for those li- listening that don't know, Nicole was originally based in Vancouver, and now she's left us for Toronto, but that's okay. That's forgivable. It's understandable. <laughs> and Toronto's treating you well, so that's good. Yes, it is. <laughs> so Girls Who Say Fuck, according to the site, is a philosophy, an incubator for ideas that instigate change, and a lifestyle for the curious. Can you tell us more where this idea kind of came from and what it really means? Yeah. So, um, by the way, I'm just, uh, you can take this part out if you want, but people should know that I'm currently locked in a closet in my empty apartment trying to make sure sound isn't fucked. Yeah. We only Um, treat our guests like the best way possible. You know, we really, we really bring out all the stops for her. (laughs) We, we, you know, she had her list of wants and needs and we, we do those for her, you know, plush carpeting in her closet. Yeah. I said I needed a safe space and you said, we'll go into the fucking closet then. Yeah. And don't ever fucking complain again. (laughs) I'm trying to figure out lighting and sound because the, uh, the flashlight on my phone just died. So if you are okay with me sitting in the dark, I'm just going to do that for a little while. This is a really um, high so budget podcast. <laughs> <laughs> no, this is a true behind the scenes. Okay. Like I know you just listed off all these beautiful things, but at the end of the day, like I'm just fucking sitting in a closet. right now. So. <laughs> I bet we're treating you better than CTV did. So you're welcome. <laughs> yeah, you're paying me better than that. Um, <laughs> the, the truth is 
funny thing, isn't it? Yes. Um, anyway, okay, so here we are. Um, girls are safe, fuck. <laughs> Honestly, it's the philosophy. It's the philosophy of fuck, and that could be fuck yes, fuck no, fuck that, fuck it. Um, I think there's so much power in that word. It's such a it's such a malleable word, and it's one where it almost like goes. The irony of the name "Girls Who Say Fuck" is it almost goes against what's considered, you know, being a woman, being a girl. Like it, it's kind of it's it's a bit of a, a like "fuck you" to the idea of how one is supposed to behave, and so the whole philosophy around girls who say fuck and what it stands for is questioning the way that we've been told life is supposed to be. And once we start doing that, we can start creating the world that we actually want to be part of. And that actually makes us feel uh, powerful. And so the, the whole premise of girls who say fuck is largely based on intuition. So it's, I, I truly believe that intuition is a skill and that it's a skill that women possess but that we haven't been told how to properly harness and this whole idea of you know if it's not a fuck yes it's a no is that you know intuitively what the right direction for you to go is what the right thing to say or do and that moment comes to you with such clarity before like doubt comes in or second guessing yourself for whatever reason comes in and so it's about it's about sharpening your skill of intuition and recognizing that it is something that gets stronger the more that you use it. Mm-hmm. Definitely. I did an interview with uh, Maxine Friend, who's a medium out in Vancouver, and mm-hmm. that's something she described as well, like this, this strong intuition that people are naturally born with. And she did an example of um, as a child, when you sit a child on a lap, and they like cry or they don't want to be around certain people, you can look at that as like it's this innate like knowledge of energies and who we like to be around and who we don't. And then as we grow older, we either start ignoring those intuitions or we start feeding into them. And it's like a muscle. The more you work it, the better it gets. Um, so I think it's interesting that you, you comment on that, that we all have it and we just have to kind of exercise it more. Um, oh, definitely. And like this, I, I read this really interesting study. I wish I could remember exactly what it was, but um, basically saying that children of um, trauma or violent upbringings will tend to have stronger intuition because you can't rely on your strength in a lot of other ways to get you out of difficult situations or to, or to be alerted to danger. So you have to rely on your intuition. And as a child, you don't know that it's not a quote skill that's really like acceptable in the general world. And so you just come to rely on it as a way to navigate what's safe and what's unsafe. And because you're in this kind of like constant suspension of fight or flight, right? You're like, you're always on guard in a way. It's almost like your adrenaline's going. And we know that when your adrenaline is going, you take in much more information and you tend to memorize things better. So imagine being in like a constant state of, am I safe? Am I safe? Am I safe? And then the one skill that you come to rely on is not one that's associated with five senses. It's one that's associated with being able to make like, to take in large quantities of, of information, deduce it, and then and then act accordingly. That's almost what I feel intuition is. Like I think if we looked into the science of intuition, we would find that it's actually the ability to t- take in a lot of information, both visually and 
uh, I guess, auditory information. And then our subconscious is just able to kind of fill in the blanks. And then it feels like it's something that comes out of nowhere. But what it actually is, is we've just almost become like a net to catch absolutely every single thing that's happening around us that we're not even really aware of. And then we're able to make it, make a, a choice based on that. So, um, as a child who did grow up in a violent household, I find that it's something that I exercised at a really young age. And then I just, I never stopped. And so my intuition, my ability to make decisions or to like tap into that quote, like little voice in your head to ask for guidance is just really strong. And that's what's essentially guided most of my choices in life. Mm -hmm. Definitely. I think like you said there too earlier was that, um, the girls who say fuck the concept of that is that something that it's society tells women that they aren't or they shouldn't be and that's something I get a lot especially in our industry where there is risk right you do need to assess risk rather quickly and put yourself in safe places and know where you know all those um all those safety precautions and then you get people being like oh you're being you're being too worried oh you're being whatever but I've gone to gigs and I've like you know I feel off like I'm gonna leave and they're like no why like just make your money who cares I'm like nah like there's something here and I think yeah I think society constantly tells us like stop being so like stop being so dramatic you're worrying like you're you're crazy um and I think it's very interesting what you said about the trauma because it's true that you you have this heightened sense of like I need to assess things and I need to listen to this for my own survival um yeah I think a very very interesting concept and I I completely agree with you yeah I'm learning so much. Like, <laughs> this is obviously nothing that I've uh, really thought about before, but yeah, it definitely makes sense. I mean, yeah. good. <laughs> uh, yes. So on the other hand, uh, men who take baths is amazing. I'm obsessed with the idea. Where did you come, where did you get your idea from? So what was interesting about men who take baths is that um, I think it's a testament to what, creativity is in that you feel like you have a moment where it's almost like you're struck by inspiration and this thing is in your brain and it's just there. But if I look back on my life, it was almost like all of these little things were being shown to me. So I could have that moment where all of a sudden meditate baths was in my brain and I was, I was in a plane and I was in that, at like that perfect altitude where you can like just see the streets and the houses and the cars and you're like removed from the world, but you're still part of the world simultaneously. And this feeling came to me um, and I actually realized there's a word for it and it's called sonder. And sonder means that that feeling you get when you realize that everybody else has a life as intricate as yours that you'll never know. And I don't know what it was, but that was the final, that was kind of like the final straw where all of a sudden I pictured myself interviewing men in bathtubs about masculinity and feminism. And I saw like a book being created. I saw this like movement. I saw it really changing things and it was just all there. And it was, it was there almost as if it was less of an idea and more of a memory. I was so sure of it. It felt like it had happened already. I was just remembering something. And I turned to my business partner at the time. Um, and I said, we're going to put men in bubble baths and interview them about what it means to be a man. She was like, 
okay. And we started planning the entire thing. And then one week before we were supposed to shoot our first series of interviews, uh, Me Too happened. And the article about Harvey Weinstein came out. And so we had these, we, we were able to capture men's psychology at this like perfect moment where they were so unsure about how to behave and what to say and how to participate. And I realized that what the project was meant to be was the documentation of the masculine identity and male psychology over a 10 year period, because I knew that me too was the beginning of something really, really important and that it was going to be equally as important that we didn't forget that we don't forget how to speak to one another. And that we don't forget that compassionate disagreements are actually where we see misunderstandings. And, and men need a place where they feel safe to express themselves without judgment. And women to see where these men are and that they exist. For men to have role models and for women to see that good men do exist. So it's, 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 it's a feminist project of, you know, almost above all things in that it does advocate for equality and it is designed just as much for women because a lot of, a lot of the women in my life at that time were asking where are the good men and, and I, and I wanted to give those men a place to speak and a good man doesn't mean a man without flaw. That's the other thing, right? Um, what's been really interesting is over the course of the last three years, I've had some women reach out and say, well, do you know that man X did this to me once upon a time? How can you say he's a good man? He should be removed from the project. And I know that's going to happen as time goes on. And I interview more men and these men become associated with men who take baths. And I continuously remind myself that I'm not doing this to bring together perfect men. I'm giving men a chance to also heal themselves and go through a feeling of almost retribution through this project by being able to talk about some of the things that they've gone through and the ways that they've affected women. I think that's a really respectable way to look at it that you know this is a way for them to heal too and you're not just because you're interviewing them doesn't mean you're condoning whatever they have in their past so another thing I want to ask too with regards to men and baths because I've seen a few of them and a, a certain couple times the gentleman said things where I was like oh <laughs> like oh <laughs> how do you handle that or has there been times where someone has said something and you're like oh that does not translate well <laughs> like in this day and age because um, even when I've done interviews people will you know say terms that are very outdated that are borderline you know not politically correct anymore or they'll have a view on something and I'm like this is not going to be um, liked by the masses <laughs> so have you encountered that with the men who take baths I think um so what's really interesting is I became a journalist not because I felt like I needed to be trained per se, but I wanted the 
credibility. I wanted, I wanted to, I wanted to go into a program that helped me, you know, hone my skills, but much like intuition, I feel like there's been, there's something that I've been, I'm born with. Actually, I had my chart read for the first time last week and it was really interesting because she was like, oh, you are like egalitarian through and through. I just, I can almost like turn off or like cease to access a part of my brain that is judgmental at all. I am like very, very accepting of, of another person's point of view their lifestyle, like whatever it is. I just don't, when I'm sitting in that conversation, like when I'm sitting in that conversation bubble with me and that man, I almost don't feel like I'm judging what they're saying so much as letting them hear them, like giving them an opportunity to hear themselves. And what I find is that sometimes after an interview, they'll reach out and they'll be like, and sometimes it's a day later, sometimes it's an hour later, sometimes it's a week or months later. They'll say, oh my God, I realize what I've said. Sometimes it's after I, pre- I publish their interviews and they read it. But the thing is, is if I try to challenge them in that moment, there's so many things that they could do. They could get defensive. They could change their story to try to placate me and tell me what they think I want to hear. And then that's not a true representation of, the masculine psychology or them in particular at that moment. So what's really important is that I just serve as a mirror to reflect back to them what they're saying and what they believe. And they tend to then realize that it is outdated on their own. Mm -hmm. Um, But I don't, I don't judge. And I, in the moment, I don't even, um, I don't give away anything with my face. I don't show them that I'm like (laughs) supporting what they're saying or, or, or discouraging what they're saying. I just ask the question so I can listen to what they have to say. And I let them kind of unspool the biases that they might have in their own mind or express their own experiences and sometimes get curious on their own about why they feel a certain way. And there's some interviews that I've gone back and transcribed where I can see that from the beginning to the end, the person is already changing their opinion. Mm -hmm. So I think it's just really important for me to be um, quite neutral in the situation that I'm putting them in because i they're in a bathtub. They're naked in a bathtub being interviewed with a camera on them and their audio being recorded. And when they look at me, I'm presenting a lot of like, I guess you could call it mothering energy where like my role in that moment is to hold that space for them. Mm-hmm. And they to know that like, that's not going to be shattered by my own ideas of mm-hmm. how they should behave. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Um, even like there's been certain times we've done interviews and yeah, like I said, someone will say something really politically incorrect and we, we've had this conversation many times. Do we edit that out? Because I don't, I don't want to look like I, one that we condone what was said or that they are going to get backlash from it. We don't want them to get hate mail. We don't want them to get, and trust me, we have the most hate mail from people. When, when people say things somehow falls on us, they're like, I can't believe you let them say that. It's like, well, they're grown adults. But um, so, I, yeah, I commend you for um, maintaining that uh, that mirror that um, this is your space and you do with what you will. And I'm just kind of the, um, 
the means of distribution kind of. Yeah. Yeah. And the conduit for it. And it's just like, everyone's going to find something different in each of the interviews that they like or don't like. But if we want a true representation of what's happening today, we need to know how people feel who don't necessarily agree with what's culturally or politically appropriate. Mm -hmm. And so it's funny to me if there's any kind of pushback from, from people being like, I can't believe this person thinks this way, blah, blah, blah. It's like, they do, they do. So how do we heal the divide now? Now that we know the distance between what we believe is appropriate and what they believe, we can now see the distance. We can now see the work that we need to do. And the whole basis of the work that I do really with girls who say fuck or men who take baths, if I were to distill it, is to heal the divide. So now to ask the exact opposite of you, what do feminine and masculine mean to you? The more that I... The more time I spend with with men and women, the more research I do into other gender expressions, the more I spend time with people who identify as non-binary, who prefer their pronouns to be they, them, the more I read, the more I come to learn that masculine and feminine are, are almost like an essence that any body, anybody can embody. So I think what's really interesting right now with what's happening with gender is this idea of gender norms or what was expected of a man or of a woman was not working so much to the extent that it was like the terminology was beyond repair, that it was worth just throwing out completely. So that's what I really like about what's happening right now with um, this kind of pronoun movement is you have other, you have people who are saying we don't identify with what it means to be a man or what it means to be a woman. So say fuck system and create like an entire new definition of human. And I think that that's a really cool step that we're taking away from these idea of gender norms. Um, when I look at masculine and feminine energy, and especially the more that I talk to people who kind of like work in those realms, it's almost like the um, polarity of the almost like dominant and submissive giver and receiver, like one not being able to necessarily exist without the other. And I think polarity is really important. Um, and I think polarity happens regardless of the body that you're in. There's some days that I wake up and I feel more feminine. What does that mean to me on that day? I generally feel a little softer, a little bit more like I want to receive a little bit more, um, I still feel powerful, but it's, it's power in a different way. It's like, it's like the power to, to receive the energy around me. When I wake up in a more dominant mindset or a more masculine mindset, I feel more like a missile. Like I'm going into the world. I'm very direct. I still have emotion, but I'm like very focused on like one singular thing. Um, that, that is how I have come to define like masculine and and feminine energy. Uh, the best way I've heard it described from somebody that I interviewed once who does a lot of work um, in this area is that 
masculine energy is like the banks of the river and feminine energy is what flows into that. Another way that it's looking that you could look at it, which is a, I mean, universal law, but masculine energy and feminine energy are the balancing of order and chaos. Mm. Interesting. I like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the place, your book, the places you'll go, oh, oh, which yes. is sitting in front of me on my bookshelf, yeah. <laughs> um, is a Dr. Seuss style book about orgasms. Where did this idea come from and how did you manifest it into existence? Well, I mean, the best way that I should manifest a book about orgasms by having lots of them. <laughs> <laughs> I, um, it was, it was incredible. Um, I remember the moment I remember the, the orgasm actually, it was the first orgasm that I felt was like a transcendent experience where I almost like I, I came out of my body and I was floating in this everythingness. Um, and this was before I had done mushrooms, but since experimenting with psychedelics over the last two years, I would say it's almost like, um, a profound psilocybin or magic mushroom trip, right? It's like you feel this connection to all things. And I remember while having this orgasm feeling connected to everything, like I was part of everything. And it was like, I reached into this place and the book came to me. It was like, it was in my brain. Um, I, I, again, just like men who take baths, like I saw the whole thing. Um, I like knew how I wanted to lay it out. I just, I, I just knew it. And I came back down to my body and I remember I wrote a note in my phone that day. Um, and it was, it said Dr. Seuss style book about orgasms called, Oh, the places you'll go. Oh, Oh, like it was just done. And I knew that for the next two years, I was going to go on a journey that was going to actually help me write it and fill in the blanks. And, um, I really do believe that orgasms are a form of meditation and meditation essentially is the ability to connect to the source or to God, which to me is, is yourself. Um, and so if we can look at orgasms as an actual form of, um, meditation and meditation is good for your mental health, then we might actually get more funding and research into looking at the benefits of orgasms as a transcendent experience. Um, I interviewed a scientist recently about the release of DMT during a cervical orgasm. And it's really cool because the cervical, the, our brain releases small amounts of DMT during birth, which is, I mean, which has to do with the cervix. And so the fact that we might actually release DMT during a cervical orgasm really shows that again, like women are built to access the source. We are built to have transcendent experiences that remind us that we're part of all things and that we are all powerful. So yes, God is a woman. (laughs) And that's the end of this episode. (laughs) Wrap it up there. Um, Just to add on to that. So I feel like I read somewhere that you did a lot of research for this book by going to uh, sex clubs. Is that right? Um, yes, I, I did. I wouldn't know. I wouldn't call it. Well, here's the thing though. Research for the book. The book is, the book is my life. The book is, the book is an account of my life over a two year period, essentially. Um, and that two year period did involve going to, 
um, quite a few sex clubs and sex parties. Hmm. Another thing about the book that Riley actually shared with me, I don't know what you really like, it's the top on your reading list. <laughs> She's like, and this. And I'm like, how do you know that? But she uh, let me know that you actually use the book as a tool to come out to your parents as bisexual. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. That's awesome. Um, that was that was really interesting for me because it almost felt like a non like a non thing. Um, it was the first time that I had put it in writing that I am, and I remember, yeah, just like looking at the words and being like, "Of course, like there's there's no other version of me that I've ever known." But I repressed a lot of that um, back when I was young, just because it. it it didn't make sense. It was like, it was already unsafe for me in a lot of ways, just given the environment that I grew up in at home to add this extra thing in there just felt like it was almost taking away from my ability to survive. I was kind of like, there's a whole, there's a whole bunch of me that's going to be put into a box and I don't know when I'm going to be able to open this box. Um, and it was, it was largely because I had made a promise to myself when I was quite young that I was going to only sleep with 10 people in my entire life. And it was this kind of like arbitrary number, but I was like, I don't want to lose control. I want to, I want to be in control of my life. And for some reason, the idea of like sex and sexuality made me feel like somehow I would, I would lose control over myself. And of course that a lot of that comes from just like growing up in like a very, um, Christian town. <laughs> so there was just like certain things of me that I was like, this is not going to work here. Um, but the more I realized that sexuality is, is kind of intrinsic or woven through all things, the more I realized the older that I became that like what I thought I had put in this box as this like neat little version of myself was actually stopping me from feeling like a whole person in anything that I did. And so it was a, it was a huge relief for me to just put it down in words and to just kind of start accepting myself as who I am. Um, and when I told my dad about it, like he, his response was, well, Nicole, you've, you've always loved all people. And then asked me what I wanted to split. Like, yeah, I think he, we were out for, we were out for, um, lunch and he said, yeah, Nicole, you've always loved everybody. And in the same breath, do you want to split a burger? It was like such a, it was just such a non thing. Um, but at the same time, I like, yeah, that was like my final, that was my final, um, dedication to the book. I added that almost last. Um, there's still a part of me that was like, does this person need to hide? Like, is it safe for her to be of the world? And I decided the very last second that it was, and that it would be a disservice to the truth of the book if I kept it out. So I added it. Yeah, such beautiful work to like come out, and now I've literally just shoved you back in the closet. Like, <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> You're like, let me out of here. Get back in there. <laughs> Close it up. Awesome. So I like I can't get over the irony of yeah, you telling me like beautiful and I'm yeah. finally out. Get back in. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> From literally inside a closet. Yeah. Um, again, I love that. I love how your dad responded to that mm -hmm. when I was younger. I remember telling my mom that I really liked one of my friends and she got like super like, like grow up. It's a phase, like get over it. And then I recently tried, I was like, you know what, I'll give her more credit. And this is, you know, nothing against my mom. They are from a different 
you know, time and they're quite old school. And I've talked about that before on the podcast, how old school my parents are, which is, you know, to each their own. And, um, I briefly touched on, uh, lesbian or, you know, being bi and, uh, her response was definitely less than ideal. So <laughs> I've had conversations with before and they're like, Oh, do your parents know you're bi? And I've always kind of thought it was like, who the fuck cares? Who knows I'm bi or not? Unless I'm fucking you, does it really fucking matter? <laughs> like, you know, <laughs> like that's how I take it. But, um, why did you feel it was important to let your parents know that you were bisexual? You know what? It wasn't even about my parents. Like it was, it was honestly for me, it was like, there were like two things about the book. The book was, the book was a huge mirror for me as well. in a, in a lot of my acceptance of self. And I remember like the character of the book, it was originally because the girls who say fuck mascot is a jackalope. And so I was going to make the character of the book an e-jackalope. And I had, I see what you did there. <laughs> And it was like, I had this character kind of mapped out in my mind. And at the very last, like it was honestly in the, like probably the last, um, couple days before sending the final copy to the illustrator to start working on it, that I just had this nagging feeling that I wasn't being honest with myself and that I was still hiding in a way. And I went on, I went on Twitter and I ran a poll and I was like, you know, should the character of the book be a wide-eyed young girl, you know, with black hair, who could I possibly be talking about <laughs> the jackalope? And the response was overwhelming that it should be a, a, like this young girl. And I realized that I was still hiding and I was still not taking full ownership over my story. And so at the last minute, I made two very, very important changes, which were for me and accepting me because I was like, if I don't accept me, then how can I expect anybody else to fully feel the magic of this book? And the two changes that I made was that I turned the jackalope into a little girl who's, who's me, who slowly gets more confident as the book progresses. And then I wrote that first paragraph at the beginning where I actually said in writing, who I am, not because I felt like I, like anybody needed to know, but because it was my declaration that I was like fully accepting myself as I am. And, you know, I actually didn't really, the book was like already in circulation and my parents had owned it for a little while before I even said like, did you notice that I wrote this thing? And they were kind of like, no, like it was like, just, it didn't even matter. And it wasn't for anybody but myself, but I know that if I had not put it in there, I'd always feel like there was part of me that wasn't being completely honest. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So another, another project you've taken on of the many, <laughs> is that the the sexual debut we touched on in the intro there and the idea of rebranding virginity and your t-shirt campaign is to rebrand virginity to sexual debut and based off your book it's surpassed its crowd uh your crowdfunding goal in 48 hours and gained widespread media attention which is fucking amazing um can you touch on that a bit like what was your first sexual experience about um and if it's not the same event, uh, do you remember the first time you felt truly sexually liberated? Well, I think the whole thing is based on this idea that you have, that you're defined by this one moment. And that 
needs to change because not only are you defined by this moment, but you're defined by a moment of penetration, which makes the concept of virginity inherently heterosexual and delegitimizes any other sexual experience that you might have that helps you come into yourself. And so I want sexual debut to be any pinnacle moment where you felt most like yourself in relation to your sexuality because that means that it can happen multiple times throughout your life and it can happen at any age and it's never too late and it's also yours. It's your celebration. And the way I look at it is we have very few modern rites of passage, right? We celebrate getting older every year. We celebrate birthdays. But the fact that sexuality, which is something that's constantly evolving um, and that we're constantly discovering, is predicated on one singular moment is absurd. So when I think about virginity, I think it keeps us really beholden to a narrow scope of what constitutes sex and therefore what constitutes sexuality. And I wanted to blow that whole thing wide open. Um, I wanted... I want a sexual debut to feel like an empowering moment. And so for me, like, like even the term losing your virginity, the fact that that's what young girls learn about as one of the first touch points of their sexuality is that there's actually something to be lost. It means that they never owned it to begin with, if it could be taken away. And that's just like, not the message that I want young girls to have as they go into this sexual journey. Um, for me, like my first, I guess my first time having sex was a really beautiful experience. It, it was a great time and it was very much chosen by me and I have no, no regrets about it. Like I don't think about it at all. It's not coming from a place of pain. Um, but the more, the, but the older I got, the more I realized, especially when I looked at language that there are a lot of young girls that are just, that are, they're holding out only because they feel like they are somehow transitioning from being pure to impure. Right. And like, that's also not the message I think we should be teaching young people, boys, especially as well. Right. Like this idea that they take something now, now puts them in the mindset that like a woman is theirs to take and that young girls are in a position where something that is theirs can be taken. So the language is outdated. The whole concept is problematic. And I want to almost draw attention to how silly it is. I don't necessarily think sexual debut is where we're going to end up. Like, it might not be the term that we use, but I want virginity now to be the thing that we grow away from. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that answers your question. No, that's great. Uh, To play devil's advocate, I could see people... And, and not not to even say, like, to put on other people, even myself, the way my mind works. Um, like, I lost my virginity at 19, and um, I grew up in a religious town, and people called me a whore in that um, because I wasn't from a religious family. I wasn't a Mennonite, and, you know, that, like, blasphemy, what a skank I was, even though everyone else was doing the poop hole loophole and fucking their assholes, but I was a fucking whore. Cool, cool, cool. Um, not bitter at all. <laughs> um, and I think that was like kind of like a fuck you to them. But I was like, all right, I'm going to be like the last of y'all to lose my virginity because you, you guys want to cat, like, you know, cast me as that. Um, and my mom, again, she's only ever had sex with my father. She's very, no sex before marriage. You don't move in before marriage. Very, very old school in that sense. Uh, and outdated. And, uh, 
So yeah, I felt that was something I should protect. Um, so when you're saying, you know, sexually debut and, and not to say that it's not a beautiful thing and it should be, the flip side of that is, do you think that kind of, um, you know, verbiage or, or changing that concept might kind of encourage young men and women to explore sexuality at a younger age and perhaps too young where, you know, like, and maybe I'm incorrect in saying this, I think there is too young of an age to start exploring sexually with someone else. I think that can do damage to a human. Um, I think there's a part of you that has to develop before you start and masturbating, fuck, masturbate, fucking one, I don't give a fuck, but like <laughs> exploring your body with another human, I think that's a very, um, I think that'd be a very special thing. And I think there is um, something to be said about waiting till you're at a place where you're ready to do that. If that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. No, I agree with you. I, I, I do. Um, I don't think that, first of all, we know in sexual education that the, the abstinence only approach doesn't work. We also live in a time where there's young people have such access to unlimited amounts of information. Mm -hmm. So it's not necessarily that changing the word is going to encourage them to have sex more or younger what you're, is, is what you're saying. What I think we can do, though, is reinforce mutual respect and sacredness mm-hmm. without being predicated on you now becoming an unholy, impure, dirty person, mm-hmm. or that there's one gender that gives and one gender that takes, mm-hmm. right? Like, mm-hmm. I think what we can teach is that is because I get I get asked this question. Um, I was interviewed on a couple of podcasts, um, like parenting podcasts, and they kind of had similar questions, right? And what I like to say is that at the baseline, sexual debut is just eliminating one really really important thing from the equation: shame. Mm-hmm. Sexual debut is about eliminating shame. Now, what can be put in that place is things like responsibility, um, sacredness, uh, equality, power, right? If we teach young girls that there is a, it's a celebration, it's their sexual debut, they have it whenever they want, they can give it whenever they want, but they this way, this way, this way, this way, and all of those things are based on respect and feeling empowered rather than don't do it, don't have sex, because if you do, then you've lost your virginity. And now these are the ways that people are going to talk about you. It's just a matter of taking like the baseline fundamentals of how to feel like an empowered person in your decisions and just applying it to the lens of having sex for the first time. So I don't think that changing it to sexual debut or just let's even say changing it away from virginity runs the risk of people not taking it as seriously. A matter of fact, if, if young girls feel like they have something sacred and what sacred is, is who they are, then they might just change the way that they approach it in general, as long as it doesn't have shame around it. Because right now we're teaching these, we're teaching the same thing. We're teaching sacredness, but it's it's shrouded in shame, and it's more about what not to do rather than how to do something that makes you feel good. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, I agree. Yeah, I like that. 
Uh, so speaking of liberation, you're also, and you just touched on this before, but you're also a, a sex and psychedelics uh, columnist. Yes. So you regularly write for the Double Blind magazine and you're the brand manager and social media strategist for multiple cannabis and psychedelic companies. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? I just want to quickly, before you get into that, congratulate you on how well you read that because I <laughs> We do struggle with this a little bit, and I somehow always make it that you have to say the most, and it's your turn to read. So I just want to give you a little shout out. That was very well Thank done. you. I'm a little, I'm a little dyslexic, so dyslexic can be a trick So congratulations. Go on, Nicole. <laughs> no, if I can just add to that, I would also like you to just always read my bio. Um, like anything that I do. <laughs> You make it sounds so beautiful. Um, yeah, so so working in the realm of sex and psychedelics, um, again, like I really do believe that there are many paths to mental health. Um, and I think that sex or that like feeling of being able to express yourself in whatever way feels best is part of an evolved society. I think that psychedelics in their ability to help us feel more connected to the whole and to also dissolve some of the narratives that we tell ourselves that and our limiting beliefs and our, our ego, whatever, the fact that we can stand outside of ourselves and look at some of the things that have caused us pain or some of the things that aren't working in our lives objectively, that allows us to heal a lot of these things are similar to a transcendent sexual experience or the place that you get to when you feel sexually liberated. And like I kind of mentioned it before, like sexuality is intrinsic in all things. Like, and I know this from experience, when you put a part of your sexuality into a box, it affects, it adversely affects other areas of your life that you might not even be familiar with. But once you feel like a sexually liberated person, once you kind of disassociate from shame, especially shame that's, that's, that's imposed by, let's say the town you grew up in Danny, or, you know, and for myself as well, or like family ideas of who you should be, or even the constitution of what it means to be a woman. Right. When you kind of like allow those things to dissolve, you have the same experience that I think psychedelics allow us to have, which is just a feeling of wholeness and a feeling of um, responsibility to the other people on this planet, like truly like a feeling of deep, deep connection. Um, and I think you can get that connection through sex. And I think you can get that connection through psychedelics where you truly understand like what it means to be part of the bigger picture. Mm-hmm. And so I want to explore that intersection. I think there's a lot to be explored there. Um, whether it is the release of DMT during the cervical orgasm, um, whether it's the desexualization of intimate female friendships and how psychedelics allow us to get to that place with one another. Um, whether it's just feeling more in your body or sometimes feeling out of your body. Like it's just, for me, it's all connected. And I think sex is one area, sex and sexuality is an area that's finally ready to be explored on a scientific basis with 
more research and funding being done into psychedelics. It's like, how can we avoid any longer talking about this other thing that we all have in common? I like that. So you also wear yet another hat. (laughs) You're a lifestyle dom. Can you explain what that means to the listeners? Or what I mean, what that means. Can you explain it to the listeners? (laughs) And how you got into that? Sure. So a lifestyle dom means I'm not a professional dominatrix, which means I do not work out of a dungeon and I don't necessarily take on clients. Um, So I wouldn't, like for me personally, I don't see myself going that direction. Um, A lifestyle dom for me is just, it's easier to kind of integrate into my life. Um, I also maintain, and I think this is probably true of of professional doms as well, but like I tend to to maintain um, quite complex long-term relationships with my subs and they have access to me quite regularly. So like we will like text often, you know, it's not like they schedule me for a certain amount of time. Uh, and then I fulfill something within that time. A lot of it doesn't have to do with, um, I guess you could say, I'm remiss to say role playing because I think that people have this like weird idea of what role playing is, is as if it's not a true expression of someone's desires. And like, if they don't understand role playing, they might not understand that you do go into a trance like state where you become what you're acting out or what you're doing. But let's say where a professional dominatrix will have a dungeon and that dungeon could be themed like a hospital room. Right. And that person will book that particular room with that particular dom and they will do something in that space. I don't have that space. So I create spaces kind of in people's minds through a constant dynamic of dominance and submission where I see myself as the gatekeeper to a version of themselves that they can't access without me. Mm. Um, And how I got into that honestly was that I have certain aspects of my personality that constantly, I constantly found myself in leadership positions. I'm an entrepreneur. Like I'm, even in relationship dynamics, there's just a certain role that I tend to take on. But I, there was almost like a part of me that didn't, like that didn't know that it could flourish in this world. Like I didn't even know that this world necessarily existed in this way. And I went out for a date with a man, um, or on a date with a man, and I couldn't quite figure him out. And I'll try to keep the story short, short as possible. But essentially. Um, after three dates, I was like, it's not going to work with this person. Like I can't get a read on them. And I went to message them after the end of the third date and say like, I'm sorry, it's not going to work. They said, okay. I went to message my friend and said, I got rid of that person. I think they might be gay, but I accidentally sent that to him. Oh, good. (laughs) Good, good. And so those three little bubbles popped up or the, the ellipses popped up with the three dots. And it was like, his response to me was go on. (laughs) I like that. I like that. (laughs) And in that moment, I understood something deep about humiliation and this desire to be seen or figured out, which I find that a lot of these, a lot of subs have. It's like, please see me and accept me and give me a place that I can 
that I can express this version of myself that I don't feel like I can anywhere else. And we ended up having the most honest two hour conversation. And then finally he asked me, can I take you somewhere you haven't been before? And I said, sure. And I had two tickets to Berlin in my inbox and I'm in the Uber on my way to the airport, Googling how to be a dominatrix <laughs> in the back of the <laughs> And I was like, it was less about me trying to become this thing and more just me accepting that these parts of me finally had a place that they could flourish. Mm. And for the amount of time that we were in Berlin, I just got to be a version of myself. Wasn't the leader version of me that wasn't the like, you know, has their shit together in the relationship version of me. It was like a totally different version of me with a lot of the traits that I already had. And I got to be that. Um, I got to practice listening deeply to, to the things that people were, were, were not necessarily saying, but I could tell that they wanted and then create these worlds and scenarios to give them that, um, without it being just in a certain time frame or a certain box. It was very liberating for me as well as this other person. And they're still in my life. Um, and now I host girls nights. I call them girls nights at one of my subs houses where with the use of psychedelics. So kind of guiding a night that involves MDMA, because I think that MDMA is a really, uh, important tool if used properly for that kind of like disassociation. And I don't mean in a negative way. I mean like being able to step outside of yourself and maybe accept some of the desires that you have. Um, also just touch feels fantastic. Intimacy seems more accessible. Um, and there's a certain amount of like power that comes from the, um, like some of your boundaries or barriers being a little looser. Um, so I guide these nights at my sub's house where women can step into their power and women can be intimate with other women without it being sexualized. And women can see what it's like to ask for what they want, knowing that the answer is already yes. And then ask themselves what the difference between that is and how they operate in their regular quote, regular lives. And again, closing that gap, identifying the distance and then figuring out how to positively and effectively close that. Mm -hmm. Just a yeah, quick, yeah. Uh, quick, a couple quick, uh, quick questions just for, yeah. um, just for explanation, uh, professional Dom lifestyle Dom, you're still getting paid for the work or for the experience. Oh, oh definitely. Okay. <laughs> I know that's probably something yeah. people are asking because professional people associate with pay, right? Yeah. So, um, and then well, I'm, not, I'm not doing. This. I'm not just doing this for fun. Like <laughs> I'm definitely getting paid, and like at this point, like I'm getting paid. You know, a, 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 an amount that I feel comfortable with, and that I don't feel like I'm compromising. Mm -hmm. um, I also want to add as a caveat that, like, I know quite a few professional doms, and I fucking love what they do. It's just, I can't seem to dedicate myself to one thing. <laughs> I don't know if you've noticed, but like, <laughs> it just, I, I can't do anything 
all the time. I need to be doing multiple things. And so it just makes sense for me for this to be like a life, like a, I guess a lifestyle thing as in it's not, it's not the only hat that I wear. Mm-hmm. Um, but for those that do it all the time, I mean, it's, yeah, it's amazing. They're amazing. And then with regards to subs, you, yeah. you didn't call them a client, you called them a sub. Um, and you said you don't take on clients. How do you only have one sub then now, or how do you I have, find? I have, I have three, two, okay. two men and one woman. And how did um, you find them then? They find me. Um, I mean, the first one I explained to you how that funny situation happened. The other one, I, um, I can't give away too many details because I, I don't want them to be identified, but let's just say like at one point I was their actual boss. Okay. Anyway. Yeah. Um, and um, the last one actually came to me through my partner. Mm. Yeah. Um, it's someone that, it's someone that he knew and, um, kind of vocalized interest, uh, in being a sub to both of us. So it's the first one that I've actually taken on with my partner as well. Oh, that's fun. Yeah, it's fun. <laughs> <laughs> a little couples night, you know? <laughs> I love that. Uh, to touch on something that me and you have talked on already, pre- like previously in this episode, um, we grew up in the same hometown. Um, yeah. And yeah, it was uh, small and very religious. Um, and yeah, look at us now. Who would have thought? <laughs> I'll link in the Paul Rudd thing. Right <laughs> Who would have thought? Not me. Uh, <laughs> So, uh, do your friends and family know about your dom work, your dom lifestyle, coming from that kind of background of a very religious community? Yes, and the other part of that is, like, I so deeply do not care. (laughs) I don't give a fuck. (laughs) I can't express it enough how little I give a fuck how people perceive me. Because I'm so fucking comfortable with who I am because I stop and assess myself at every single level of my evolution. I do so much meticulous self-assessment and I'm so sure that what I'm doing is what I'm here to do that I cannot be detracted from I cannot be swayed away from the path that I'm on because I am so sure that what I'm doing is exactly what I'm here to do and that is so much about liberation it's so much about the liberation of myself it's about the liberation of those around me it's about the liberation of those who come in contact in my work or with my work and who resonate with it that if there are people along the way who say that they don't understand what I'm doing or that I'm not who they thought I was, I say, thank fucking God. Mm-hmm. Okay, bye. <laughs> Honestly, <laughs> it, just, it just doesn't matter. Like, my family is super supportive of me because I think they've known from the time I was really young that, like, I just wasn't going to walk a conventional path. Uh, and I'm really excited for the day that the work that we're both doing is no longer seen as unconventional. Mm-hmm. Um, but for now, it is, and that's okay. And... 
for anybody else from my, you know, from that, from that hometown, like I just don't talk to a lot of those people anymore and not because there's any bad blood. It's just like, there's, there are evolutions and phases of life. And sometimes you just don't have anything in common with people who like are from that time period. And like, that's just kind of my life now. Like I really am surrounded by people who are doing a lot of similar work to me or who believe in the work that I am doing for the greater good. Mm-hmm. And I, I keep that in mind. Like I am contributing to the collective in the way that makes sense for me through my lived experiences. And I'm creating as I learn then. Yeah. And I'll, I'll stand to be corrected by people I take seriously. You know, like I love being corrected if it's by somebody who has the right intentions. And so I'm completely, I'm completely open to that feedback and I've received that before and I'm, I will stumble many times on this journey, but it's those who, when I stumble are also there to lend a hand to help me up, to show me the other way. Those are the ones I take seriously. And if they have some criticism, I know it's coming from the right place and I'll listen, but there's some people if they have criticism, I just, I can't be fucked. Yeah. I actually read something, uh, a day ago that said, don't take criticism from people that you wouldn't take advice from. Mm-hmm. That's good. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and I think, uh, and I've said it before, it's really important, especially getting into, like you said, things that are technically like taboo or non-conventional, especially if they are sex work related. You need to be doing it because that's what you want to be doing and you need to be sure of your decision to do it because the backlash you get and the stigma and the hate, like it's hard to take if it's going to impact you. And it's like you said, it's a lot easier to not have it impact you if you're really confident in your choices and you know you're making them that they're the best choices for you and you're making them in the right headspace. And then whatever people say about it, like really shouldn't impact you. And people always ask me, you know, how do you how do you fight against people that hate what you do or hate you for doing it? And I go, they're not in my life. Like <laughs> that's that simple. They just won't have a space in my life for it because we will if we disagree on what I do for work. Um, we're going to disagree on a large amount of things. <laughs> like, um, yeah. So, I'm, yeah, I'm the same, and I know you're the same way, too, is that, you know, if you don't like what we're doing for work, then, especially, like, for, like, these fundamental reasons of, like, sex work is the devil, and, well, then there's the fucking door, right? Well, it's really interesting, actually, because there's something that I said to you, I think this was maybe a year ago, maybe even longer, that actually bothered me that I, I really want to bring up, which is that... It was, it was when you and I were talking about potentially doing that documentary together and you asked me, well, do you consider yourself a sex worker? And I said, no. And that stuck with me for a long time and has clearly stuck with me because I actually felt, I didn't feel right about my response to you about sex work. The more that I learn about, um, how sex is not just about penetration. Sex is so much more than that. The more people who, who identify as sex workers who I talk to, like I, I, I just understand a little bit more. And I think that's really important. I think, I think like constantly researching and being friends with people who, who do these things, like it's contributed to my growth. And so I constantly ask myself that question that you asked me, like, do you consider yourself a sex worker? The fact that I'm a little bit, that I'm still a little bit uncomfortable saying yes is the work that I've been doing since we had that conversation a year ago. 
And I think that's really, I think that's really important. And like, that's just something that I'm, I'm admitting. And it's not anything to do with anybody else. It has everything to do with, with me in the same way where the book it took me two years to finally put it, put down in words and to put myself as the little character. Like I'm still, I'm still figuring out like as a lifestyle dom, does this mean I'm a sex worker? And if I am, why do I have a problem saying those exact words? Mm-hmm. So just wanted to one, like, thank you for asking me about that. Um, and two, much like anything where anybody has pushback when it comes to this industry or the work, it has a lot less to do with their actual understanding of what's happening and more to do with a resistance that they have within themselves for whatever reason. And it's really, really important to get curious about why there might be that resistance. And that's kind of what I've been doing the last little while. Well, I guess the last year is like, what is it about the word sex worker that makes me go like, Oh, I'm, but I'm not. Well, you are, mm-hmm. but I'm not what well, you are. So <laughs> why are you fighting it? Um, it's, a, it's a really charged word. Like as Dana mentioned before, it, there's a lot of stigma and negativity that comes with it. And it is, I do feel like it's really important to kind of like take back that word just like how a lot of women have taken back the word slut, you know, it, I feel like it really is important because it's just a term that describes any type of work um, in which someone receives like sexual gratification from and pleasure and pleasure. Yeah. And, you know, I, I know a lot of uh, dancers who don't feel comfortable using that word as well. Like it is just a really charged word. So yeah, I mean, it's it's difficult for sure, and like I I do like sympathize and empathize with you about that. Well, and I and I love language, and I love words, and I love looking at charged words. That's how sexual debut in Virginia. That's how the whole thing kind of came about, right? It was like looking at these charged words and breaking them down. And I love what you said, right? It's like someone receiving sexual gratification or pleasure. And I think that's a really important thing because, especially, it's like with some of the work that I'm doing. It's like I'm trying to. Ex- expand the scope of what constitutes sex and pleasure the eradication of shame and and a world with more pleasure like these are the things that I really want to advocate for so it's like trying to make sex work just this thing just this idea is so against like everything that I believe in that I stand for but even I sometimes struggle with a word like that that's that's charged with all this like negative connotation and yet I've seen beautiful transformations and like I don't perform any like I don't do anything it's so it's so weird I don't have sex with my subs okay like I don't like I don't really like touch them in that way. But what I do is I create opportunities for them to experience pleasure. And sometimes a lot of that pleasure comes through pain. Mm-hmm. That's still sex. That's still sexuality. That's something that's bringing them a great amount of pleasure. Right. So it's like, again, it doesn't just have to be sex. And I think once we can get rid of this idea that it's like just sex or that sex work is about just sex. And it's not about like sometimes offering someone to listen to it's like that's a lot of what it is so I hope it can be taken more seriously and yeah in the same way that I hope that orgasms as a form of meditation can be taken seriously no definitely and yeah I I mean even I 
tend to choose the word depending on my situation and mm. that I use to describe what I do. Because, like, I mean, both me and Danica are not full-service sex workers, so, you know, we're not engaging in quote-unquote sex. Um, but, you know, we still consider ourselves sex, worker, uh, sex workers. I'm very comfortable with that term, and I still find myself using alternate words like dancer, exotic dancer, uh, anything, entertainer. entertainer, anything more vanilla or accepted or not as charged when I meet new people. And I too challenge myself to use that word sex worker to take that charge away from it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then it's that delicate dance too of like, there's that <clears throat> aspect of it where it's like, do I owe this to someone? Like if I can, if I can gauge them and there's going to be a lot of stigma and judgment, like can I, can I just not be fucked to like, you know, I have to explain to them why I'm a sex worker and what that term means. I take that on because of the work I do where, <clears throat> excuse me, especially when I go into the university, I say, you know, I'm a sex worker and then I break it down to, I'm a stripper. I do private parties and I, you know, X, Y, and Z, I dom on the side. And, uh, and I express that the reason I, I use the term sex worker is one, because I believe it's an umbrella term to unite um, a very marginalized group. It also, I think, addresses the fact that it is work and there's a huge labor aspect to it and that it's sex work is real work and um, you are doing a disservice to the millions of people that do sex work to take that away from them, that it's not a huge labor um, focus. And, um, and it kind of is like a fuck you to the hierarchy too that's very prevalent, unfortunately. I see it more so in the strip clubs where, you know, I'm just a stripper. I'm not a prostitute. Well, I'm just a half service girl. I'm not a full service girl. Um, so kind of uniting everyone with this sex worker term. And then if they want to go further into explaining what avenues of sex work they're in, um, it's kind of like challenging that kind of hierarchy of like, Hey, we're all in this together. We're all providing pleasure to people. We're all getting something in return for it. Whether you're getting, you know, um, a trip or a car or money or, you know, X, Y, and Z. Um, but yeah, like I, I echo what both you said. It's a supercharged word, and I think that's a journey each person has to go on. How comfortable they are with the terms they use, and at the end of the day, like you have every right to call whatever you're doing whatever you want to call it. Um, but I, I, I acknowledge and I appreciate you um, bringing that up, Nicole. And I love that something we talked about a year ago um, challenged you in that way and, and helps you kind of, uh, reevaluate that and work through it. I love that. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, I'm so proud of myself for asking the questions. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> no, it's funny enough is that literally the next question was, do you consider yourself a sex worker now? So clearly I've been, I've been, I've been, uh, mulling over it myself, waiting, <laughs> waiting to force it on you again, that question. Um, but you, you beat me to it. That's fine. Um, so, uh, back to the doming, uh, lifestyle doming aspect. How, yeah. how does that impact, or better yet, does it impact, um, and what's the correlation between the doming and the power dynamics um, with your lifestyle doming to your, in quotes, you know, your regular life? Oh, yeah, great question. Like, this is something I love to explore, but I would say that when I... It has a lot to do with with speaking and a lot to do with language and the way that I say something. And I think words create your reality, right? You can speak something into existence. You can vocalize something. And if you do it with conviction, it almost feels like it's charged with an energy 
that can then start to bring you the things that you want or attract people into your life who you want. And there's a difference now that I've noticed between when I say something with conviction versus when I say something and I don't really believe it. And where I've had a lot of practice in that is telling somebody something that I want. So telling a sub to do something and getting really comfortable with the minute details, like get on your knees, worship my feet, roll over, expose yourself, whatever. Like when you have control over somebody's movement based on things that you're saying, you realize how powerful your words are. And so in my quote, regular life, if I say something I can almost gauge, I almost have like a built-in barometer now for how much I believe it. And that's almost a direct correlation between whether or not it will happen, whether or not the, it's almost like, it's almost like a manifestation tool. Like words are not just, or sorry, manifesting, manifesting is not just about thoughts, right? It's about having the thought and speaking it into existence. Manifesting is how clear your thought is. with how much conviction you speak that thought, which then almost creates a ripple effect that brings to you what you want. And so what I find when we're talking about power is when you become comfortable having a thought and speaking it in a way that you already know that it will be received and you will get what you want from speaking that, you can practice that in your regular life where I almost have a built-in barometer now where I can tell when I say something almost whether or not I'm going to get the results I want based on how much I believed what I was saying to be the thing that I really wanted to have happen. So I think that you can almost, and I'm noticing it at like these like girls nights or whatever, where you can practice truly believing in the thing that you want, speaking it, and then applying that same feeling to the things that you go after on an everyday basis. So it's like, it's like the transition from thought to word, kind of like taking a arrow out of a quiver, putting it in a bow and shooting it. Hmm. So going back to like the terminology actually that we started with, we talked about, you know, um, feminism and masculinity and something that comes up a lot in the work I do. And I assume in the work you do is the term feminist and, what does that mean to you? How do you define what a feminist is? And do you consider yourself a feminist? Yeah. So this, again, like this is a really interesting question for me. Um, and the way that I'll describe it is that a lot of the time when we talk about women being equal to men, we kind of use this hand gesture as like men are above and women need to like reach a certain point to be considered equal. But I think what feminism is, is recognizing and giving opportunity for women women to do an exceptional job at at being women. And that means to do differently without repercussion. Um, Beyond that, though, because I think there's like, it's such a huge word because I think there's a lot of change that's required. So not only is it women being able to do an exceptional job at being women, which means doing differently than men, but it also means like there's a difference between gender equality and gender equity. So gender equality is everybody gets the same. 
gender equity is that everybody gets what they need, which could be different to be on an equal level. And I think with feminism, it's like advocating for gender equity. The other thing about feminism is you look at a patriarchal society versus a matriarchal society and patriarchy is generally led by, it's led by men and it's led by force where a matriarchal society is more about the collective. It's more about community and it's more about, I would say actually intuition rather than, rather than brute force. So I think in transitioning into a matriarchal society, we also have to realize that there's going to be a temptation to um, almost get back at men. And I think what we need to do as feminists is realize that it's not just about women. It's also about men. And that if we do things together and we heal together, we don't need to get back at anybody. Um, but then you get into things like hierarchy and power structures and how we will always seek power. So it's funny sometimes that feminists are branded as man haters where that's not what I believe feminism is. It is about recognizing that we all do require different things in order to be equal. And that if, if women especially can begin to lead in the way that we know how, um, we can start to form a new society. And I think a matriarchal society is what we're moving towards. I think there's hints of it all over the place. Mm -hmm. Um, but feminism is not exclusionary and it's not exclusionary of any type of person, right? It's not, it's not exclusionary of men, nor is it exclusionary of trans. Mm -hmm. Well, that actually brings me to the next question because it's something I've dealt with um, to a great extent is uh, what is called a, a swerf, which is a sex worker exclusionary radical feminist. Yeah. And they run a rampant. <laughs> so, I mean, I'm, I've assumed you've likely encountered them a bit as well with regards to the work you do um, and the lifestyle dom and, and the how open you are with sexuality. Um, as someone who I would say is a very active feminist um, for yourself with your projects and your agenda – how does doming play into that aspect of what uh, feminism is and what a feminist is? And um, how do you respond to someone who's saying, you know, that's not true. You're not true feminist. You're playing into the patriarchal patriarchy of they're using you for your body and your sexuality and you have no self-respect. Because you hear all these things from these uh, swerfs, right? Mm. Or I do at least. <laughs> this is a huge question. Um try to keep my answer as simple and succinct as possible. Fuck them. No, just <laughs> Fuck them. No. Um, I think as a, in a position of a power dynamic between a dom and a sub, especially as the woman being the dom and the man being a sub, you are retraining that man to see power as a form of surrender. And you are showing him that one cannot exist without the other. And what I mean by that is that a dom cannot exist without the sub, right? The sub cannot exist without the dom. One is a giver, one is a receiver in the sense that one surrenders and receives and one directs and guides. 
when a man especially reframes the fact that power means surrender and receiving and when when that man looks at that woman and goes like I can't access this part of me without your guidance you are changing his association to power as being a like singular goal-driven like kind of fuck everyone else thing and it becomes more of a holistic exchange between two people and so this idea that somehow being a dom makes me like less of a feminist I think that person is is actually failing to see the amount of power in holding that position and retraining a man in this way to realize that he is incomplete as a person unless he accepts this side of himself that is softer, can take direction, and is able to receive guidance. And as much as I, I think these things translate in my regular life from like a, like a power-dominant standpoint, I think from of of a submissive standpoint that will also translate into this person's life because how can you possibly disrespect a woman in your regular life if it is a woman who is also giving you access to a complete version of yourself Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I like that yeah it kind of reminds me of like the saying topping from the bottom like Mm -hmm. there's a lot Mm -hmm. of power in in uh kind of being submissive and allowing yourself to go into that space with another person. And I think people, because it's typically people who aren't into kink or aren't into like um, a dom, sub or top bottom kind of relationship that don't understand that the sub has just as much power as the dom. It's just in a different way. Mm -hmm. I think too, like, and that's what you, um, for listeners, that's what she means by topping from the bottom is that submissive, there's also a power dynamic between, it goes both ways. Yeah. And that's yes. something I've expressed to my subs and, and my, in my personal relationships when we are doing more of a BDSM style um, evening, uh, that as much as you're trusting me, that I will respect your safe words and respect your boundaries, there is a huge level of trust on my end with you that you will express those to me and that we can both feel safe here um, and we both need to trust and, and care about each other's boundaries and, and all that communication and all that. So, yeah, it's extremely incorrect to think the submissive is just taking whatever gets thrown at them and they have no mm-hmm. active role in this. Um, and if that is, if you're a submissive and that's the role you're taking and that you have no control... Um, you need to get a new dom. <laughs> Nicole might be taking on clients. I am always taking on clients. <laughs> Hit us up. <laughs> but it's like everything that's happening to you as a sub is because you want it to happen to you. Mm-hmm. Yes, definitely. Yeah. Yes, you yeah. should definitely be yeah. having say in what is yeah, happening exactly. to you, and that's like, concerning if you don't. I feel like that's a huge just misunderstanding. Yeah, it's like, completely. Yeah, exactly. It's like one controls the other when in fact there's an equal amount of control and like. Lack of control. Yes, yeah. yeah. and exactly, and, and the that the idea that the person, the submissive, is choosing to give that control to you, right? Like you're not taking control from someone. Mm-hmm. There is that, like, the consent is huge in the BDSM community. That's the biggest thing of it. Um, 
Yeah, and then then we can go into the whole thing about how when men are doms and then women are like, oh, they just want to beat on women or vice versa. Very, a lot of problematic misconceptions. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, we don't have time to get into all of them, so we might have to have you on for a second episode and (laughs) and dive into all that. But um, speaking of people that are interested in dom work, what are some tips you'd have for listeners who might be interested in exploring dom work or dom Um, lifestyle? Like dom, like... Women that want to... Dom or female dom? Uh, women getting into uh, wanting to do dom work. So being in your position, they want to get to your position. Yeah. I mean, the first, uh, it's, it's interesting because again, like I, I fell into it in kind of a funny way. Um, but if I were to go back and I realized that it was something I wanted and I, it hadn't come into my life with this wild trip to Berlin and whatever else, um, I would say like, there are plenty of resources and women who are professional dogs who would be happy to kind of like impart some of their wisdom so long as you pay for their time. So I think that like finding a dungeon, which obviously during COVID is, is not possible, but like go on Twitter, um, you know, find, first of all, I should even backtrack ask yourself some very important questions about why you're drawn to this. Like, why do you want to do it? Why is it something that it interests you? If you just think it's like some easy way to make money, um, cause you hear about like fin doms, which are like financial doms who just like get their rent paid for every month. And you think that means doing absolutely nothing. Like you are gravely mistaken. Like you are, you are maintaining a relationship with somebody and you need to not only set boundaries with those people, but you also have to really be a person who accepts other people's kinks and desires because there's a reason why that person is not just going and getting into a relationship or finding fulfillment somewhere else. It's they're coming to sex workers or to doms because there's something that they can't find somewhere else And they're worried that they'll be judged or perceived as weird because of it. Are you ready to be the person that accepts them fully for that? Not only that, but are you ready to be someone that they trust deeply with things that they might not even have admitted to themselves already? Are you capable of holding that space for these other people? Are you capable or willing to give your time when it might be inconvenient for you? Uh, are you are you capable of doing this on days where you don't necessarily want to? It, especially if you're going into the professional dominatrix realm, right? Like, if you have client bookings and you're just like not in the mood that day to be that version of yourself, you still got to do it. It's a business now you're running. So I think it's really important to like ask yourself those questions and have those answers already before approaching a dom, uh, a professional dom. Besides that. There are books you can read. There are forums you can read. There are things you can follow. There are videos you can watch to learn skills. Okay. Like you can learn how to use a flogger and, and a whip and handcuffs and shibari and whatever. But for me and what I've learned is it's mostly about the mind. How is your own mental health? How is your mind? What's your relationship like with power? Um, what do you, like, what do you enjoy? And do you feel comfortable talking about this? Because the other part of it is if you're going to go into this or want to go into this, but you're not going to feel comfortable telling anyone because you're ashamed, 
you are perpetuating the idea that this work is something to be ashamed of. Not to say that people can't have like different facets of themselves, right? Like, especially a lot of Doms will have like a whole other like big persona and whatever. But you have to ask like, if there is going to be a line between those two lives, why? Is it for the right reason? Or is it because you don't want certain people knowing that you're doing this? Which then I think is like worth evaluating and probably figuring out before you pursue it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I, I agree with everything you said. Uh, the only thing I'd add on too is that just because you're a sex worker doesn't mean that you, to me, I don't yuck anyone. Like I was saying, you know, you don't yuck someone's yum as long as, you know, uh, it's between consenting adults. Uh, I don't care how many holes you're using. I don't, you know, take all, do all orifices. I don't care. But, um, but all orifices welcome. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) But, uh, just because that works for you at someone, you don't have to, you don't have to be okay with it for yourself. Like I've had potential clients come to me saying, you know, I want, um, feces or something, you know, like that's something I, I'm into, you know, poo or whatever. <laughs> I hate that word. <laughs> and, uh, and you know, that's not for me. And I'm, I'm also allowed to express that, you know what, that's great that you're into that. Maybe I could find you someone who enjoys that with you. Um, that's not something I offer. Um, and you know, just because we are these pleasure providers, let's say, um, doesn't mean that our own uh, boundaries take a backseat by any means. And I think that's another thing when someone's coming into this industry is really, like you said, have this talk with yourself about where you're at and have a talk with yourself about where your boundaries are, where your soft nose are, where your hard nose are, where you're, you know, what you could, could explore a little bit, you know, all that, uh, just adding on to, uh, to what you said there in your, in your yeah. there. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Uh, so another little advice bit for our listeners is, what are your tips on becoming more sexually, sexually liberated? So I would say, honestly, like I can't express more the importance of self-awareness. And what I mean by that is understanding who you are and what makes you feel good, why that's not currently in your life, and what are some external ideas that have been told to you about how you should or shouldn't behave that are influencing you from getting that which brings you joy. I honestly think that that's the place to start because I can't, I can't say anything else because it's, it's, it wouldn't be specific to that person. But what that person needs to do is again, like heal the divide, look at who you are, look at what you want and figure out what are the blockages that are stopping you from getting there? What are the stories that you tell yourself that are holding you back? And some people can do that on their own. Some people require an energy worker. Some people require a therapist. All of those modalities are completely okay. But if you truly want to become a liberated person, even you can even the word sexually, a liberated person, a whole person who feels comfortable and safe to express themselves. Like you need to know what it is that's actually stopping you from doing that. So then you can start gaining the tools to move beyond it. Mm-hmm. I love the irony that these, sometimes those conversations with yourself and with others about pleasure 
aren't always pleasurable. You know, like they, they're they tough conversations yeah. to get to that pleasure. You know, you have to do the unpleasurable things. This has been great. Um, we have a million more questions we want to ask you, but um, I'm only allowed to upload X amount of minutes. And, <laughs> and I keep forcing listeners to have two-parters. So we're trying to, this is like what we're working on. Um, but before I get to my three fast uh, fire, whatever it's called, what's it called? Fire something questions. Mm, no. Quick fire, I don't know. Last time we said about hot potato questions. Hot potato questions. Yeah, New Year's is coming up. So yeah, New Year's is just around the corner. What do you got planned for it? And do you have any New Year's resolutions? Uh, so so funny. Actually, my my sub is out of town, so I am taking over his house, and I am using his giant kitchen to start making men who take baths bath bombs with questions on the inside of them. Love it. So very excited about that. Um, yeah, really really happy to have. Um, a beautiful spot to work on this project. It's just going to feel so good going into the new year, um, experimenting with bath bombs in a giant bathtub. Yeah, that's so okay. That, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, my honestly, my my resolutions for the year. I look at the year as a whole, and I ask myself if I don't end the year with this or as this version of myself, I will be disappointed. And so, what's come up is that if by the end of next year, I have not one figured out how to um, trade on the stock market um, and have a pretty good understanding of cryptocurrencies or so digital assets and Bitcoin. I'll be disappointed. I feel like it will be a wasted opportunity. Um, if I get to the end of next year and I haven't um, taken certain courses, not, not necessarily gone back to school, but taken certain courses that allow me to, um, do more work in psychedelic assisted ther- like therapeutic settings, I will be disappointed. So my big focuses are really the things that I'm doing, but just more of those things. So sexual liberation, girls who say fuck, mental health, movement for men, men who take baths, um, and then honestly learning how to take control of my finances, uh, specifically through investing and understanding that the future of finances lies in digital assets and like truly, truly learning about that. Mm-hmm. I, I like that idea of, um, at the end of the year, what would I be disappointed if I didn't achieve? I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to take that with me. I'm going to snatch that from you. I'm going to take it as my own and I'm going to do that yeah. when I make my resolutions. Yeah. <sighs> Cause I think a lot of the time we sit ourselves up failure as we have to do something or like consistently or it's ruined or you know Mm -hmm. like we didn't do it I like the idea that ending yeah yeah. just having a goal by the end of the year as opposed to something that you have to upkeep for the for the whole year yeah yeah I like that yeah we're taking it it's ours you'll be disappointed if you don't do achieve become or have so it's like looking at you this time next year like you have a whole year ahead of you who like who do you want to be and what will you be disappointed what will you go oh my fucking god I can't believe I didn't do that and then work your way backwards yeah I like that we're taking it to ours now yeah. uh, <laughs> okay and they're called rapid fire questions okay people that was the fucking term I was thinking of what no hot taters just answer not think right yeah lukewarm lukewarm taters that's what they're called <laughs> Tater tots. Riley, you're fired. <laughs> go, go sit in a closet. 
<laughs> okay, so each interview I do, um, we do, I ask the interviewee three questions, and um, they're kind of just to wrap it up, some kind of fun questions, just to kind of get a, a glimpse into, um, you know, just your sexual bucket list. So the first question, what is one thing on your sexual bucket list that you haven't done yet, but you'd like to try? I would like to experiment more with shibari and actually being tied up, but um, suspended. Mm, I like it. What is one thing you've tried sexually that you won't be doing again? Ooh, um, someone peeing in my mouth. I, uh, I, I prefer to be the one peeing on somebody. Mm-hmm. Yep. No golden drinks over here. Got it. <laughs> um, <laughs> Not to me. <laughs> and the last one here. If you had the world's attention for 30 seconds, what would you say? I'm saying it. With everything that I'm doing, I'm saying it. So just keep listening. I love it. Awesome. Love it. Okay. Thank you so much, Nicole, for joining us. Where can people find you? Girlswhosayfuck.com, menwhotakebaths.com. Uh, Instagram is at Nicole double L. That's N-I-C-O-L-L-E, the word double, and then another L, or at menwhotakebaths or at girlswhosayfuck. Uh, the orgasm book, if you'd like to purchase it, I would definitely say go through my website rather than Amazon so I can sign it for you and write a little personalized note. Uh, that's theorgasmbook.com. Yeah, I would definitely recommend that book. It's very fun to have on the shelves. It's very fun when people come over and realize what it is. <laughs> also, if you're trying to get a domain um, and they're not available, it's because Nicole has all of them. Uh- <laughs> <laughs> Those are just the ones that are public, too. Yeah, Jesus. She's like, I took 300 domains. No one's having any access to anything. <laughs> Riley, where can people find you? You can find me on Instagram at Vansity Riley. Awesome. And as always, you can find me on Instagram at 50plusatip or email at 50plusatip at gmail.com. Slide to the DMs, email any questions, comments. Um, I, you know, we love getting them. So mm-hmm. talk to us. Keep your concerns mm-hmm. and criticisms to yourself. <laughs> yeah, just we only want compliments here. Only. <laughs> Good vibes only. Fuck you. <laughs> awesome. Thank you so much for joining us, Nicole. Thank you. Thank you both. Have a wonderful new year and happy hoeing. Bye. Bye. And before you guys run away, make sure to check out our amazing sponsors. We have Miss Envy Botanicals, and they're dedicated to producing 100% organic medicinal cannabis products available at upscale dispensaries nationwide. They have a wide variety of products ranging from topical skincare, culinary additives, and cannabis oil, as well as Phoenix Tears. All of their creations are produced with only the best organic non-GMO ingredients and infused with love. Use code DANNY10 for 10% off. Truly Lifestyle Brand is an all-natural and cruelty-free skincare company that allows your skin to become its best self. They just launched two new amazing products, a facial scrub and a powder exfoliant, so go check those out right now. Use code TRULYPLUSATIP for 10% off your first online order. Temptations Avenue Laundry is a Canadian-owned laundry brand with a variety of styles ranging from sexy and wild to demure and sweet. Check them out on Instagram at Temptations Avenue and use our discount code TIP25 to get 25% off. That's TIP25, T-I-P-2-5 for 25% off your entire order. 
And lastly, for hair and skincare products that work absolute wonders, follow my girl on Instagram at tiffany.valentina.bella. Message her Danny Hair to get your personal hair and skin consult and save up to 40% off on her amazing products. Have a wonderful week and happy hoeing.